Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. My name is David Breer and we're recording this live from the Money Pots podcast booth at Money 2020 in Las Vegas. In today's episode, we're going to be asking, is the US world beating when it comes to the payment systems? And just like the food in Vegas, the payments industry doesn't do it small over here. The US is the home to the biggest payments players, the most valuable companies, and the most sought-after market in the world. But does that make it a world-building industry? Just because the hot dogs are big over here doesn't mean it's good, does it? Uh, I've learned that this morning already. Uh, we've put together a wonderful group of experts to discuss how do things look in the US payment space right now? What are the biggest challenges that everybody's facing into? And what could the future look like as well? We'll discuss all of this and probably a few more food comparisons and much more in today's show. But first, a few brief messages. Don't go anywhere. These days, every new potential hire can feel like a high stakes wager for your small business. You want to be 100% certain that you have access to the best qualified candidates available. That's why you have to check out LinkedIn Jobs. Just add your job and the purple hiring frame to your LinkedIn profile to spread the word that you're hiring. Then use simple tools like screening questions to quickly prioritise who you'd like to interview and hire. It's why small businesses rate LinkedIn Jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. LinkedIn Jobs helps you find the qualified candidates you want to talk to faster. Post your job for free at linkedin.com slash fintech. That's linkedin.com slash fintech to post your job for free. Terms and conditions apply. Here at 11FS, we believe in explaining FS without the BS. That's why we created our 11FS Explore series. Weekly videos that break down a complicated financial services topic into something everyone can get their head around. Such as... On ramping. Buy now, pay later. The cost of living. ESG. Stable points. Telematics insurance. And inclusive design. Search 11FS Explores on YouTube now. All right, let's get started. As always, I'm joined by a super group of amazing guests who can shed a little bit more light on this super interesting topic. First of all, we have a welcome return to Tech Insider for Wade Arnold, CEO over at Move. Welcome back to the show, Wade. How's it going? It's going great, David. Thanks for having me back. No worries at all. Uh, it sounds like you were having a lot more fun yesterday than you know me putting through your paces on payments, right? I was. Yesterday was my 44th birthday and my daughter's eighth birthday. So we were in Hawaii. And Hawaii to Las Vegas is uh, about as high to a low to money 2020 as you can get. <laughs> well, we're going to try and make this uh, a lot less painful than that for you in that sense. But happy birthday anyway. That's why I'm here. Yeah. Well, we should have brought cake, shouldn't we? But uh, for anybody who doesn't know, tell us a little bit more about Move. Absolutely. So Move is a U.S. network of networks payments processor. So capital P processor directly connected to the four card brands, the clearinghouse, and the Federal Reserve. And if you have complex orchestration of money movement, aka move, then we may be the right provider for you. Very good. Well, uh, lots of that to talk about as we go through the show. So great to have you back, Wade. Uh, next up, we have also a FinTech Insider debut for Kristen Anderson, CEO over at Catch. Welcome, Kristen. How's it going? Going great. Thanks for having me. 
Um, you, Fintech Insider debut, but we spoke recently, didn't we, uh, we did. at uh, Nexus. Uh, it was a lot of fun. That's right. Yeah, it was fun. We had a couple ferns, right? We were sitting between two ferns. It was. It was Fintech <laughs> between two ferns, wasn't it? But uh, lost on the podcast. Funny in the video. But, yes, uh, but, that's true. Uh, um, for anybody who doesn't know, tell us a little bit more about Catch. Uh, so we are a portable benefits provider for independent contractors. So mostly where we're sitting today is helping independent 1099s pay their taxes, move money around according to how they earn income, which is on a variable and volatile schedule. Very, very cool. And again, very, very relevant to a lot of things that we'll be talking about in terms of actually how you make payments relevant. So, uh, Gosh, I hope so. <laughs> well, that's quite, it's good. We, we picked the guests uh, for, for the show, which is nice. Uh, last but by no means least, we have a FinTech Insider debut for Ginger Baker, who is Head of Financial Access over at Plaid. How's it going, Ginger? Fantastic. Thank you for having me for my debut. No worries at all. For anybody who's living under a rock, what do you do? So Plaid is a data network that allows millions of consumers connect their financial information to the apps and services they want to use to better manage their financial life. Very, very cool. Again, very relevant to what we're going to be talking about. So let's start by looking at how the payments industry and infrastructure look in the US today. Um, maybe if we go quick fire here, and it's going to be interesting, I'm making awkward eye contact with Wade straight away on this one, but uh, what score out of 10 would you give the state of payments in the US in 2022? Nine out of 10. Nine out of 10. We actually did something new in the United States. That's odd. Okay, so progress. Yeah, I can see that. Progress. Ginger, what do you reckon? So I would say eight, because I think we're making great progress, but it's hard for me to get over how slow we were to get here. And so five years ago, I would have given us like a four. And so now that we are where we are, I'm proud, but it's still hard to give us top-notch scores for such a slow trend. Okay. Uh, we we play, I feel like we're playing a hot game of higher or lower here. What do you reckon, higher oh or lower? Oh my gosh, my hands are sweating. I was thinking four, and I didn't think that'd be controversial. Stand yeah. stand on your four, like go for it. <laughs> uh, I mean, I think it's just hard to say that you know maybe inside of these organizations it feels like we're making progress, but at the end of the day, for consumers, I think there's still a lot to be desired. Yeah. So so I guess Wade on on the developments, you know, you, you say there's there's been developments. What are the what are the the biggest ones that you think in terms of the, the the changes that we've seen to to earn your eight? For me, the acceptance of real-time payments in the United States, and I mean acceptance because the clearinghouse has had real-time payments, but it felt like it was a false start. So US announced the first net new rail and 32 years with TCH and everyone was excited about it. And then people are like, eh, but I'm not really sure I want to be a part of that group. Uh, so it's almost like two little clicks in high school. And by that happening, then you had stagnation in future development from 2017 till 2022. The announcement of FedNow allows ubiquity and you really need ubiquity for access in the United States. And so that's why I'd give it a higher ranking as I, I do believe every financial institution is excited about being able to have this new disruptive technology in the United States. Yeah. And it feels like such a, a fundamental of business in that sense, doesn't it? Um, I guess touching a little bit on your point around people not wanting to play together a little bit. Well, why do you think that is? Because, I mean, we, we do see that in lots of other geos, the you know, the payments council in the UK have struggled dramatically to get, you know, it's like some sort of mafia meeting of all of the different bosses to to get who's actually going to sort of get on board with the thing. And nobody really wants to be first, but, you know, nobody really wants to be last either. So is it a similar vibe? I think so in the sense that you have, 
you you really do from a retail standpoint have ubiquity in the United States with the clearinghouse in order to do uh, retail real time payments. But all of us make money off of B two B payments, and a lot of those businesses live in the long tail of financial institutions in the United States. And so, although you can build something like Zelle on top of the clearinghouse because you you have this ubiquity in retail payments, you're missing out on the monetization strategy, which is really the B2B payment, which uh, encompasses that long tail. So I'm excited about FedNow because now you have the, the large banks who are bringing all the retail customers, small banks, which are bringing ubiquity. Uh, obviously, the, the large retail customers are at the large banks, but that long tail allows for that last mile of development of software technology solutions in the U.S. that that um, you know a payment rail doesn't change anything. It's what people build on top of the payment rail that really changes things. Yeah. And so I think ubiquity is what was necessary for people to invest into building out that last mile. Yeah. And we've sort of seen quite a lot of innovation in the U.S. markets because of the lack of these things to a certain degree. I mean, Venmo's a thing because you know, lots of these payment capabilities weren't in there in the first place, right? Uh, and lots of different organizations in that sense as well. But I mean, how, what has really been the driver for change here? Is it, uh, I mean, obviously things like the pandemic have been quite a big yeah. driver and various different things, but what, why, is, why is this change coming about? Yeah, I mean, I think we have met people where they needed to be over the course of the last now three years, I guess two years with the pandemic and now entering 2022 or the second half of this year with economic uncertainty and, um, you know, lack of confidence in the economy, people are adopting fintech more than ever before. So we just did a, a survey with the Harris poll called the fintech effect and 93% of Americans are using fintech solutions to manage their daily financial services, which is up 16% in just one year. So whether or not the infrastructure has been there historically or whether or not we moved as fast as we could have, we're here now. And so that's what I think is, is great to see. I wish it didn't take a pandemic and economic uncertainty for us to finally deliver on you know, the purposes that we've all been here working in the industry for, but we, but we have done it. And so what I think it's interesting to see is that consumers are telling us that the services are meeting me where I am now. And so in addition, I think the personal financial management tools are being adopted more frequently. Payments is not as adopted as frequently. I think it's something like 59% of American households are using some kind of bank-linked payment service like Zelle, Venmo, Cash App, et cetera. But it's been these external waves, not necessarily our investment in infrastructure and experience that have driven consumers to this point. Yeah, almost necessity sort of gets you to that point in some instances, doesn't it? And, you know, you've definitely seen that in many other geos. It's sort of the the weird tipping points that sort of come to those things. Slightly counter to what you were saying and not wanting to, uh, uh, this is not... Um, uh, a counterpoint for just for statistics sake. But there was a, some research that came out from Pew Research that said uh, six in 10 Americans, so 59%, uh, in a typical week are still purchasing things using cash in that way. So there's a real balancing act there between, you know, financial services and fintech capability. Probably most people, I'm surprised most people say that they're using fintech because probably they don't know, you know, in that right. sense. It's just a payment in that whatever way. But there's still a lot of people that are using cash very regularly. I mean, is that is this an either or, or is it a, a both in that sense? Yeah, I think it's a both, right? Um, again, back to the theme of meeting consumers where they are, people will use the tool and the channel that's most equipped to handle the thing they want to do. So um, if you're in a social channel, I'm in WhatsApp or I'm in Messenger and I want to send money to a friend, I'm going to do it in that channel because I have that communication 
um, opened in that way, right? So that's my app of choice. If I want to buy something at the local bodega in a particular market and they don't accept any uh, digital payments, then I'm going to pay in cash. And so there's going to be different pockets of when digital financial services are used, cash payments are used, um, and typical cards are used. Yeah. It's interesting though. I mean, even getting into Vegas yesterday, when I said I had no cash on me, the the guy at the the passport patrol thing looked to me very oddly. Oh, you know what I mean? So it was like, a, uh, I'm not sure they're usually expecting people with this beard coming in with like a big briefcase of cash or something, but uh, I'm not really sure what the issue was. What, what do you think? Is this, uh, is this things that are hitting mainstream then? Are we seeing the the benefit through to end consumers or end businesses in that context to to really benefit from what's happening in fintech. Yeah, I um, I, I would say both of your your guests here are much more payment experts than I am. I, I might be more of a, a consumer expert, um, and so this is really fascinating to hear because I think you know if you just look at those P two P platforms that you talked about, right? Like the speed to get your money out. If you don't want to pay seventy five dollars when you split your rent with your roommate, it's going to take you days. So I'm just like fascinated to hear, you know, eight out of 10, nine out of 10, when what we're really seeing is consumers who have to use five, six, seven different tools to be able to accomplish things. And, and sure, there's an element of, you know, what vendors and what, what situation is best for what, but there's been a lot of regulation that's made it hard for consumers, right? Like people using PayPal and Venmo are now facing these additional tax forms that they have to file. So people are going back to cash when they didn't use to, and they we thought these platforms were solving their problem. And then they said, well... I don't really want to have to answer questions about taxing earnings, which again, I can get into that. But so I think it's really interesting from a consumer perspective. I think a 10 out of 10 is the ability to send money where I want it to go with like instant onboarding quickly, easily, and at very low cost. Again, obviously a lot of people at, at this conference and in this room are monetizing off of money movement, but from a consumer perspective, the ability to like say 10 out of 10 to me means that I can move money at, at next to nothing. Um, and I think we have a long way to go on that front. Yeah, if you're being motivated to use cash as a way to avoid questions about tax, that's. Um, I just want to say that's not financial advice, anybody. Just oh, of course so not. If you're listening, but my uh, my app helps people pay their taxes. That's literally what my company <laughs> does. So obviously, I think it's important to pay your taxes. But, but I think Kristen, you're speaking on behalf of the consumer. So mm -hmm. maybe we're excited about the future of technology. Mm -hmm. That future doesn't exist without the demand from the consumer that you're dealing with. And you're right. dealing with the day-to-day, -day and, and maybe I'm an optimist over here as, an, you know, as a payments uh, nerd. And you mentioned FedNow, which I think, I think we heard about. You know, we, we work with Banking as a Service. We're a customer of Plaid's, right? And, and we work with Banking as a Service to be able to move money through ACH. And I remember in 2018 laughing about uh, the announcement in 2023 that we would have real-time payments and being like, well, my startup's either going to be successful or dead by then, but like, <laughs> won't help us at all right now. Sad, sadly, I think FedNow delayed real-time oh, payments. Oh, I'm sure they States. did. Like, why would I invest into the clearinghouse if I can right. wait three to five years to do the ubiquitous thing sure. that is mandated by my charter in order to comply with? And I think that's unfortunately set us back. Um, but to your point, you know, the, the real-time money movement Things like Venmo, Cash App, they're almost like a check in the sense that you get a contract. You don't get the money, but you do have a contract that you have something that you have recourse on. And it may take you a couple days afterwards versus ACH. Um, and, you know, maybe they'll send it to me. Maybe they won't. Um, makes yeah. it hard to adopt that type of electronic payment. 
Definitely. It's a it's an artifact of a non-real-time system in that sense, isn't it? Which is, um, yeah, sort of making it good rather than actually making it good in the first place in that sense, isn't it? So, I mean, what about um, obviously something that really sort of shapes the landscape globally and, and obviously something that you guys are, are proud of, of benefited from in uh, the UK and Europe is open banking. Um, how is that going here? Like, because, I mean, it ain't, it, you know, everybody sort of looks at different geos of, of like how these things are being implemented or the, uh, the capabilities getting all of the banks to, to opt in um, to something that other geos have had to make mandatory. But how's that going here? Yeah, I would say the market-driven progress that we've made in the U.S. is really distinct from other geographies. And I like that, right? I like the approach of the industry coming together and saying, we're going to meet consumers where they are with the needs that they have, and we're going to develop services in open finance, what we like to call it, because we think it's beyond banking, but we're going to develop services in open finance. And the regulators come along with us. Like, we want more regulation in this space. We're eager to have more standardization and regulation here. But I like the fact that we've got something to demonstrate. Like, what are the nuances of the way that the ecosystem needs to evolve in order to support the use cases that everyone is building? Mm. And now we have real-life examples so the regulators can see, oh, now I understand the role that this particular type of institution can play, or I understand why a consumer is wanting this kind of service and the value it brings to their life versus some other geographies where regulation really led. And then it's difficult, right? It's difficult to explain the constraints that that puts on the products that we're building because you can't see anything else. Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm happy that the United States has been more of a market-driven example of open finance uh, and we're eager for uh, the regulation to come along. Can I ask a, a silly question here again as the non-expert? Would you mind doing like a one or two sentence of what you mean or both of you mean when you say open banking or open finance? Do you want me to do it? Yeah, go for yeah. it. So for open finance, it's a person's ability to connect the financial information that sits in the accounts that they utilize um, to other services. So making a completely open network for your financial data. When we talk about it on our team, we talk about it as a person should literally be able to just, you know, put their financial data in a suitcase and take it to the next place that they want. So complete and portable financial data. Um, and the benefit of it is that you have some interoperability between um, those data sets, right? So if you're looking to have a personal financial management app, if an open finance system exists in that country, then the person who's building that wealth management or personal financial management tool for you has access to the data that you might store in lots of different locations. So it could be my checking account, my investment account, now also my crypto holdings can now be surfaced in the tool that I want to use to manage my wealth. And so that just gives me a more complete picture. Um, and it's based on the premise that people don't just use one financial service or two financial services for their lives. They use um, the diversity. What do you think, Wade? I mean, uh, I agree with a lot of what Ginger says. I mean, it's a the US market has taken a very different approach and it's good to see so many people coming to the table. But back to my, um, you know, heads of the mafia meeting type uh, scenario, then uh, is there enough benefit for the banks in open banking for them to really come to the table? I don't think so yet. So if I look at PSD2, I think about that as, wow, that's as low as we can set the bar for what we want to accomplish in order to allow consumers access to um, I think initially it was really about data, but but I think you said something uh, really wise, which was, how do I manage my finances? Yep. And so what I'm hoping we see in the United States is that companies like Plaid uh, are able to take those integrations that are read-only or data access only. And if I want to manage my finances someplace else, you know, who cares if Plaid tells me that I'm about to overdraft my checking account, even though I have uh, 
$10,000 in my savings account. I'd really like to use that tool that they're empowering in order to move that money. And so I think we have insights right now. We have access to data right now. But I want that next level, which is actually taking action on top of the data. And, and that's something that you can do in Europe. And it's not there in the United States. And so I see the bar in Europe as pretty low. And we're not there yet in the United States. And so uh, hopefully the true free market economics in the U.S. actually surpass PSD2 and allow us to do more interesting things and allow developers to meet me where, where my need needs to be met. Do you mind if I make a comment on, on the banks being ready and the value prop there? Um, because this, I spend a lot of time um, making sure that we're working really well and constructively with the industry. And when I first began the journey at Plaid, I think there was a little bit of a sense that Hey, the banks are sort of sitting there as data holders, and then there are other types of institutions that are utilizing that data to build tools and services. I really think that's fundamentally changed in the last 18 months. The If you think about it, those offerings have really converged. So for Plaid specifically, some of the largest financial institutions are also now our customers, and some of our largest customers are also some of our largest data partners. And so you see folks sitting on both sides of this open finance network and being able to leverage tools and services from one another in a very equal way. So now banks consume data from the fintechs to build their apps and tools. And so I, th I think that that's been a really cool transition to see the banks are both um, contributing to and benefiting from uh, the service. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the, 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 where I sort of see and where we've seen in the UK, uh, the rubber really hit the road is, you know, provision of access, the, you know, level of capabilities, the APIs that are really being set up, the, the stability you can actually have to build real capability on top of that, because you know, in a in a ideological sort of sense, then this should be the the foundations of the next generation of everything that happens in financial services. But if you can't rely on those things, it only takes it to go down twice, and then you know, customers lose trust, and therefore you know, trust is broken. But I, I do agree with you. I think the the bar is pretty low, though, with you and getting to you know, VRPs and the variable payments and everything that goes with that. That really takes us to a different place. But the the challenge that I sort of see on that sense, though, Wade, is that uh, is there a benefit to the banks of that? Is that not just value destroying from their perspective? Because you know um, interests and you know uh, teaser rates expiring and uh, you know um, overdrafts, all of these things. You know the business models of financial services needs to evolve because real time capability is a thing at that stage, uh, and that I think is a wonderful opportunity. But if I'm trying to protect my existing business model, I'm also terrified at night, you know, not my business model, 11FS, but mm -hmm. the big bank's business model in that sense. So, I mean, in any crisis, there's opportunity, but you can see why there's different agendas at, at play there, right? Yeah, absolutely. So banking's kind of like wine. All the hard work is making the grapes and keeping them alive their entire time. The last mile is where you make all the money. And that's actually making the wine. And so when I look at the financial institutions that see this as a one-way road, you're just taking the data from me. Um, access to data and whether or not it's the bank's data or the consumer's data, we can, we can make that argument back and forth. But the last mile is when you can actually take action. So if I'm willing to make a same-day payment to my loan, if I'm willing to transfer funds between goods, uh, I think there's a great opportunity to monetize those actions while still giving away the access to my balance and transaction history and things like that. Um, and so 
to me, it's it's uh, maybe more in line with with what uh, Kristen's thinking is. How do we take it from a utility, uh, a commodity, uh, making grapes to to making something special, and that's meeting the consumer and their point of need, and being able to monetize that point. Well, I, yeah, I, I think that's that's absolutely right, and I think there's still a lot that's unproven about those business models. Um, PFM, personal financial management, has been notoriously hard to monetize, and so is is that the wine? Um, I would like it to be right. Right, <laughs> my company provides financial management in that last mile. Like we believe that that's where the value is. But um, talk to any early stage venture back founder who's like, we're going to make an app that helps people budget right? Like there's just not a willingness to pay that goes along with that. And so I think, you know, people obviously are unhappy with banking fees and payment fees and things like that, but there hasn't been, um, I don't think there has been a scaled unlock of what the new business model looks like that, you know, again, I'm, I'm an early stage company. My, my peers, uh, <laughs> I've spent a lot of the last couple of years talking about the Durban, Durban amendment and being able to get interchange. And, you know, we've solved everything with, with that. But I think we all know that that's, that's not the long-term scaled way to make money off of payments and, and consumers. And so I think we don't, I don't, I don't know what that answer is. And I think you're right. It is what is that last mile value and it's where and how do you capture that? Because again, consumers don't have a, a super high willingness to pay for subscription, last mile financial management, even if, if I personally think they should. Yeah. I'm going to sort of keep Wade's wine metaphor going a little bit, but I, I guess PFM. get a bottle of wine. I know. I'm, I'm getting <laughs> this conversation could yeah, be I'm getting really thirsty. Um, the, the PFM is essentially the label on the front of the wine, isn't it? And to your point, it's about what you do with that. You know, people, people don't buy wine to look at the label. They buy wine to get drunk, don't they? So actually the, the action off the back of it is more important. And that's where, I mean, payments really is just a facilitator of doing something in that sense. Um, it's, it's the action on the insights. Yeah. Right. So if, if all it is is data, that's insights. But my point of need, and it doesn't matter how much money you have, like you forget to move money between accounts or whatever, that ability to do that through the means that I want to, sure, maybe I can log into JP Morgan Chase and do it for free. But if they offer that as a monetization structure through their API, maybe I as a consumer don't pay for it. Maybe the the fintech sitting on top of their API pays for it, but they should be um, rewarded for allowing access to that. And it, and it really is that point of need. So if I can move money for 50 cents versus an overdraft fee or a late fee or anything like that, I think there's a real opportunity there for banks to actually structure open finance in a way that, that is, uh, you know, non-interest income back to them. Yeah. I, I think that, that materially, I completely agree with that. That, and if I had to, if I had to paint the picture of the future of financial services, it would be something that manages your money for you, rather than penalising you for, you know, missing something in that sense. And and so much of what you're talking about there um, gets you to that point, doesn't it? Which is, you know, if you've got somebody managing your money for you, that's what they would do, right? Uh, if you don't, because you can't afford that, or you're, you know, out of the country for three weeks and you miss it or whatever, then then actually you end up being penalized for those things, which is kind of crazy given the environment that we've got in. The only thing I can see of why that doesn't happen, though, is, again, back to business model. If that's the way I make money, then, you know, I kind of hope you miss it, really, you know? Um, so that evolution of, of financial services in that sense seems, it seems like it's a 
sort of a fundamental building block around business model that we have to overcome. And, you know, you can put as place put in place as much technology or, you know, APIs for this or incentives for that or whatever. But but unless we evolve past that, then I mean, is that the is that the major sticking block in terms of stopping these changes happening? Or is it is it something else? Well I was gonna make a comment on partnerships and the importance of that just the things that Wade was discussing, because you do have great partnerships, even in the wine industry, Wade, where you have someone who's manufacturing the grapes and doing all of the hard work behind the scenes, and then someone else who's marketing it on the front. And um, I spent some time at Facebook working on financial services there a number of years ago. And I think I felt a little spoiled in that situation because there's another monetization model happening within the organization, right? And so the actual financial services that we might be building into a service like Messenger or Facebook or something else that consumers are using can stand alone as the experience and there's something else happening to monetize. And so I wonder how the combination of some of that back end, the hard labor on the back end and the unique surfaces that consumers are already using on the front end can be combined so that the business models work for everyone. Yeah. I mean, I think that's uh, sort of manufacturing and distribution is always the way in that sense to a certain degree. I mean, would the, do you think the incumbent organizations who do most of the transactions from a payment perspective would see that as a positive thing? Because if I'm, if I'm JP Morgan Chase, I don't want to be a back office rails thing because I've got to be super effective and super low cost, which, you know, most big banks infrastructure, they're not boxes were ticking, right? So do you think that's the outcome that they would want? So I think it differs by the institution and organizations because they all have different types of strengths. And you all might know this better than I do, but you know, some of them are going to develop those products just as good as any fintech on their own, right? They've got the technical competency, they've got the the will to do it, and they're investing very significantly in those services, and they're doing a great job. And other institutions might say, that's not my core competency. I have a commercial payments core competency or community banking core competency, and therefore I want to think about ways I can leverage some of my resources and assets in partnership with another institution to really build a different business model. So I really think it's dependent on where that institution sits and their own in their own motivations. Yeah. So I, I was uh, at an event with um, Jamie Dimon not too long ago. Just dropping that in there. Yeah, like One of our investors was brand. friends with his dad, oh, I guess. Jamie. Yeah. Were you there? I was there. Oh, right. You guys, you guys were all there. Were, Wait, you, were you actually there? It was Nike, Nike <laughs> Partners. They're, they're one of our investors. They're an amazing venture firm. But um, actually, I was there. I told you. <laughs> In New York. There you go. Uh, right. Now I really feel jealous. Yeah. But he um, he he mentioned, and this morning again, someone someone on the payments team at J.P. Morgan was talking that they move ten trillion dollars a day, a day. Um, and you know, Jamie Dimon said, "We want to make money, mo- moving money. You know why? Because it's expensive to move money, and it costs a lot of money to move money. And so I think that's that's where there's still a lot of friction. It's where a lot of people are excited about." Web3 and decentralized finance and things. I don't want to get that. I'm not an expert there either. But, you know, that is where we talk about, like, the cost of moving money moving money going to zero is really difficult because in the, the world we exist in now, it costs a lot of money to maintain the infrastructure to move money. And so those payments cost a lot. And consumers are not always bearing the cost. Like you said, well, maybe the fintech can pay. Well, that's what's happening right now. But that's not sustainable. Right. The fintechs need to learn how to monetize. You know, they need to learn how to, to make a, a sustainable business of their own. And at some point, just layering on middlemen, like consumers have to find a way to create the value for those companies in order for that system to survive. Because it doesn't sound like Jamie Dimon wants to not make money on moving money. He wants the grapes to be expensive. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, we're really straining this, uh, straining this metaphor, aren't we? Yeah, we're, sorry, I can I can help it. So, I mean, is that is that the biggest pain point? Then is it cost in the system? Is it the cost in what is that the thing that you think is holding 
back movement, and I don't mean movement for money, but movement of the industry in that sense, right? Yeah, it was interesting when I was at Jack Henry, uh, the CEO at the time, I, I was saying we were a software company, and he, he, um, he's no longer the CEO, um, but he said, no, we sell indemnification. I thought that was fascinating because <laughs> he was right. Um, they were selling the ability to pass your OCC audit. They were selling the ability for uh, all of your compliance needs to be met. And I think that to your question about, you know, what's the main problem, it's who's indemnifying this? Who's carrying the liability um, in this transaction? And in the case of Jamie Dimon, Jamie is, right? And so um, Happy Path of Payments is, is frankly, very cheap and very easy. Um, you know, go lose a million dollars and the rest of the <laughs> transactions get real expensive real quick. Very, very true. All right, well, we'll be back very, very shortly with a few more wine metaphors, I'm sure, and a bit of a look forward to what's going to be happening in the payments industry. Back with you very shortly. The rise of data-driven financial services has opened up new ways for banks and lenders to better connect with their customers and offer exceptional user experiences. But to take advantage of these opportunities, we need to break away from traditional constraints. A new report from Tink shows how open banking can pave the way for faster and more responsible lending practices that are robust on risk and financially inclusive. To find out how Tink can help you transform lending, read the full report at tink.com forward slash 11FS. All right, folks, welcome back. Uh, we're going to take a little bit of a look about what is happening in the future then. Uh, where are we going uh, in a back to the future type sense here? And Wade will uh, fill you in on what we mean by that in a second. Uh, if the payments industry in the US uh, isn't world beating, and I think we, you know, there was sort of eights and, you know, some begrudging fours, but uh, with a bit of high potential in the, in the scoring earlier on. Um, what do we need to put in place here to, to really catch up and, and lead from a, a world perspective in terms of where we're going? Is it purely putting in place all of the pieces from an infrastructure perspective? Is it, is it making more of the players play nicely together? Is it, what, it, what would you like, guys like to see? What turns your eight to a 10? So we, I think when you go back to why it took us a while to get to this place, I think we had a lot of great investment in a highly developed payments infrastructure for decades. And it's really difficult to upend that existing infrastructure and completely overhaul what's already been created in order to move on to the next phase. And I think that's always going to be the place where the U.S. gets stuck because we make great investments a long time ago and they work okay. And in countries where you haven't made those investments, it's really easy to just leapfrog over, you know, swipe terminals, right? Right into digital and mobile payments. And I think that's always going to be the Achilles heel. So what are those still existing infrastructure investments we've made that we tolerate because it works, but it's not great. And we just can't get the buy-in and the partnership and the motivation to make the investment to get us where we need to be. Mm. So I actually think that can apply to many different things. I think identity systems and identity verification. I think blockchain may be a solution on some of the um, centralized solutions. Um, and I think just on e even existing um, user interfaces and, and applications. So. Well, I, I totally agree with that. I, I think that's exactly what it is. And when you, you mentioned a couple stats at the beginning about how the U.S. is such a large market, it's such a prominent market, we control a lot of global finance from this location here, not Las Vegas and this podcast, but 
the U.S. more broadly. Um, and and I think that the the question about is the U.S. world beating in a payment system? When I was looking at that the that prompt, I often I was thinking about it as well. Well, sh- should we be? You know, should we be ten out of ten? And and I don't think we should because I think that what comes along with that is risk, right? And that's what we were sort of talking about a little bit. And that like jumping straight to the 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 bleeding edge of some of those innovations comes with a lot of uncertainty, a lot of like loss of control, a lot of these systems where the legacies have been really important. And and again, we we've, we've put in place a lot of compliance and a lot of pieces that make the system maybe a little slow, maybe a little lagging, but but it, it works. Again, you don't want to lose a million dollars, right? And and we can't do that, right? We move so much money and that's where the place where there is opportunity for, for fintech and startups and small companies and emerging economies to try certain things that we shouldn't be trying first <laughs> in the U.S. And so I think the, the ideal state is an eight or a nine out of 10. Um, and I think that's the place where we, you know, we, we want to lead with technology. We want to be doing all of those things, but I don't think we should be aiming for the bleeding edge because it's it's just too big of a risk for the system that we have. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point, isn't it? Is a is a ten today a a six given the industry is moving so quickly in three years' time? You know, arguably, you know, what are you aiming for? Are we aiming to be to your point bleeding edge here, or are we aiming to be you know reliable, safe, and secure in the way in which people kind of want their money to be moved in that way? What do you think, Wade? You know, I was one of the people on the FedNow advisory committee with. Google that was arguing to adopt really UPI rather than FedNow is technical from a technology standpoint. It's the exact same thing as the clearinghouse RTP. Um, what was to me fascinating about UPI, and I think the adoption numbers that you see in India is they fixed the last mile problem. So the actual, uh, not to get overly nerdy, but the actual URL for request for payment, invoice. Um, everything you need is in that URL, which allows you to build a QR code and build all these type of things on, on top of it. Um, that's much different than an IBM MQ, you know, XML message that's on a closed loop proprietary network. So to get me to 10, it's, uh, I think we should have gone further in the United States in order to um, allow the innovation to build on top of the payment rail versus solving the onboarding uh, and, and the payment facilitation problem. So we, we got a net new rail, but it didn't really, um, it didn't solve the problem of helping the consumer. Yeah. So a, a private business is going to have to solve that, that kind of last mile with FedNow and, and the clearinghouse. Compare that to UPI, where the actual network solved that problem, and now innovation can be built on top of that. And so, you know, my my wish, which which went unheard, was that we, the innovation could be not the payment rail, but but what we build on top of money movement. And and for the U.S. to really be innovative, I think um, we're going to go see another five to ten years of that last mile. And then the real innovation happens on top of that afterwards. Yeah, it's it's interesting, and it sort of goes back a little bit to what you were saying in terms of the uh, the the distribution and product creation to a certain degree in that sense. Because I guess in India, uh, all of the capability was put in place, but it took demonetization in a major way to incentivize people to get on with it. Really, and like you know, to a point where you're like, well, 
has the investment in the existing systems and it's weird to talk about this as a as a country rather than just like a bank but you know have they seen the ROI from physical cash yet you know actually has that does demonetizing in that sense get you to a a better place uh I mean how to that point how does things like central digital currencies play into this is that uh, when money is actually digital is that going to make it easier for us to sort of conceptualize in large organizations the movement of it? To me, it's fascinating that you and I can exchange money faster and as technologists figure it out, how to use the Lightning Network in order to open up a channel and exchange value between one another faster than we could go work with our banks in order to make that happen in a, in a you know, U.S. dollar system in the United States. And, and if we spend all of our time going and building that stuff. You know, we're not spending our time solving real problems. Yeah. And it's one of the reasons I, I like to say Move is, is the most popular open source uh, payment network, you know, payment projects in the United States outside of crypto. We're also the only one. So, you know, take that for whatever it's worth. But a lot of that was just to break down the unknown. How, how, does, how does ACH actually work? How does Fedwire actually work? How does Image Cash Letter actually work? And so we, we released those free and open source. And it, it was really the passion project there was uh, release knowledge so that real innovation can happen on top of that. That's one step, but you, ubiquity is really the next step, you know, so that people can all build on top of the same infrastructure. Yeah. Can I just make a comment about that? Because I think there's been so much attention and interest in digital assets and blockchain that I think folks have tended to look at the technology and what is it that I can do with it as opposed to what's the problem I'm trying to solve. And I think because it was sexy and interesting, people just sort of skipped over some of the infrastructure that was already in place to try to explore how to build solutions there first, when in fact it all has to tie together in, in the world in which we live in today, because you still need to move physical paper cash into digital fiat currency into generally into then a digital asset and then translate it. You know, so there's a lot of steps there and going all the way to the end to try to solve that problem without figuring out how to connect it to the rest of how the industry works, I think has, has given us some great lessons. Um, we also could have started from the other side and I'd be interested to see what would the outcome have been. I, th I think though you're dealing with this black box and to some extent, a lot of people who own the black box were making a lot of money and not sharing information. And so was it easier to learn this net new thing, um, how to exchange money in crypto versus how do we exchange money over ACH in the United States? Like arguably both are super complex, a, a big hurdle to understand, yet the crypto space has more information that's readily available on the internet in order to learn it. And so there is some amount of, hey, I just want to exchange value and maybe it's easier for me to go figure this out in the crypto space than trying to understand the, these complex U.S. payment rails. Yeah, and pricing open that big black box when people don't want you to do it is um, somewhat of a challenge in that sense. But we are, you know, we are seeing progress, obviously, in that sense. I mean, a lot of stuff that we've been talking about, because it's the name of the show, is about the U.S. payment system. But back to your point there around uh, you know, uh, exchange of value uh, more broadly or more internationally, then how much of that is a consideration for... You know, the U.S. has a, a huge part to play in international standards of, of these things. And, you know, not just from a payments perspective, but like a dollar is basically the standard of value everywhere. So, you know, actually at the point where we get to a, a you know, a central digital currency that is a dollar, 
you could easily see that being adopted in many other places in that sense as well. So, uh, you know, not wanting to put pressure on you guys, you're sort of building the rails of the, the world in that sense, which uh, is probably the title of this podcast that we're going to put out actually in that sense. We just named it here. But do, do you think that's a, a consideration in terms of the ways in which people are setting up the infrastructure now? I mean, I certainly do. I think everyone who's building in this space is aware of that responsibility, that opportunity and the and the scale. And I think there's a, a an understanding that if you're not building for global money movement, um, you're at a disadvantage, right? In terms of, especially in terms of payment, right? Um, but I think that, again, the world that we live in today is still relevant. So it's, it's easy to sort of say like, yes, we'll just start from zero. We'll build a new protocol and anyone anywhere can just like move value in quotes, right? Um, but but the existing system of actually getting money everywhere all the time and every status is just not something that most companies can take on without the ability to access these these big black boxes. Mm. I mean, it's, you know, it, what's the joke? There's five competing protocols. I was, well, uh, was going to make that one. <laughs> just to solve it. Yeah. <laughs> to solve it. Here we go again. Yeah, Every big bank technology project is a new platform, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think? I mean, you, you operate in many different geos yeah, as well, yeah. and the ways in which you can interact with your clients, I guess, is quite different in the way in which different system, different geographical systems allow you work. to. Yeah, that's right. And I think the way that regulation unfolds in each of these markets is really a, a key variable in what we're able to do. I also think it's a key variable in how much influence the United States will have globally over how some of these systems are formed. Because if we don't have the clarity, the regulatory clarity in the United States in order to continue to invest and innovate in some of these spaces, then it's just going to hinder our ability to demonstrate um, the tools and services that U.S.-based companies um, can, yeah, can create. Interesting. Um, and we started the podcast with a, a view of like where we were from a school perspective. But I mean, I think we've sort of talked ourselves into the place where the school really sort of doesn't matter to a certain degree. I think back to your point, Kristen, about, you know, do you need to be world beating or not? I think we've sort of talked our way into thinking that you don't need to be world beating. Is that right? I, I guess it depends on what, in what way, right? World, world beating in what way? Is it the, the newest technology, the, the slickest language? You know, COBOL is, is reliable, right? We, you know, there's, there's something getting, about COBOL. Get, that, getting engineers to, to, to develop on it is less reliable these sure, days, I'll be honest. But, that's uh, fair. <laughs> you got a kid in high school, get them to yeah, go into COBOL. But um, I guess that's the thing, right? Is it, is it about the, the latest language where there's more risk and uncertainty? Or are we talking about world beating in terms of, um, scale, reliabilities, you know, and I think I think speed is one of those things where that's where I see a lot of the biggest gaps, right? And that like, sure, you can move money instantly, but how much does it cost? Who has access to that? Um, is it is it just consumers in certain locations? Is it all types of money? Is it businesses? Again, I know we didn't talk a lot about business payments, but like how are business to business payments being made? Um, and I think that's that's where I think I see the most opportunity to improve. But I, I don't think it's about like, is the number this or that? It's it's more about like, what does the system need to be able to do? Is it doing that currently? And where is it falling short of those needs? Yeah. So I, I think the number matters, but I don't think it's a number that compares our infrastructure speed and prowess to other countries. I think it's all about economic impact, right? I mean, I don't know about you all, but I'm in this space because I care deeply about the intersection of financial services and technology and what that can do for people and businesses and economies. 
And if we measure ourselves based on the impact that we're having on outcomes for the economy and outcomes for individuals, then I want to I want to be like a 12 out of 10, right? So like I do deeply care about the score. I don't care about the score of what the infrastructure looks like to get us to the outcome, but I do care about the outcome. That, that sounds almost like I'm not, I don't want to paraphrase you here, so do correct me where I'm paraphrasing you incorrectly, but that's then a not who's best, it's who's biggest sort of argument in that sense? No, it's um, who's the most impactful. Yeah. The biggest, you don't have biggest to be the biggest. Proxy, yeah, yeah, yeah. You I don't understand. have to be the biggest. You yeah. just have to be the best at delivering the solution that the sure. people need to drive the outcome that they're looking for. Well, and fundamentally, just because of the lack of those systems, you know, we, we sort of skirted on a three or a four, you know, if we went back six years, it hasn't stifled innovation as, as much as people would sort of make it out to be, given the companies that have come along and filled those gaps, right? Uh, you know, if everything was wonderful, we wouldn't need a move, right, Wade? So actually being in a situation where you have a problem to solve and have, you know, smartly solved that problem, that that kind of puts the, the market in a very different place, doesn't it? Absolutely. You know, we, we don't deal with consumers, we deal with businesses. And turns out being able to settle a card transaction and give them same-day access to that money for an SMB, it's a pretty killer feature. So how we do that, you know, all kinds of nerd crap around that. <laughs> But when we talk to our customers and we say, hey, would you like same-day access to capital for any cards that you, you uh, transacted with? Everyone says yes. Yeah. Because um, cash flow is still king. 100%. I mean, so much of this, whenever you talk about payments, you know, anywhere in the world, whether it's the UK, the US, Africa, wherever, it all comes back to what it does for the customer. Uh, and if they, you know, care about what it does for them, then there's a great benefit and they adopt it, you know, in, in major numbers. And if not, then they don't. Probably a good place to leave the show in that sense. Uh, do stuff customers like. Who would have thought it? Hey? <laughs> we cracked it. I know. It was uh, within the hour as well, which is good. All right, guys, that uh, wraps up this week's show. Thank you all for joining me. Uh, where can people learn a little bit more about you and your companies? Wade, starting with you. Absolutely. I'm Wade Arnold on Twitter and all kinds of uh, banter about fintech uh, that def definitely represent my company, which is move.io. Very good. Uh, a rare person who says their Twitter does represent their company. I like that. <laughs> but uh, um, Kristen? My head of comms is watching, so I'm not sure I'm allowed to say that my Twitter represents the company. But uh, I'm on Twitter at Catch Kristen. Uh, our company is called Catch. We provide benefits for independent contractors and 1099s. We're at catch.co. Very good. Well, she she's sort of laughing and shaking her head, so I'd take that as a no if I was you. But uh, Ginger, where yeah, can people... Yeah, for all things Plaid, you can head to plaid.com, and I am on LinkedIn. I do have a Twitter account, but I'm not going to get into the situation as to why it is no longer very active. Working on that. <laughs> I, I want this. Now I got to follow it. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have to go find that now, just in case. There's going to be like just cat pictures, like loads of cat pictures. <laughs> Sounds like the best just babies. That's what we're here for. Just babies and cats. Nice. Well, that's what the internet's for, right? All right, guys. Uh, as for me, you can find me lurking on LinkedIn mostly these days. So connect with me on there. Thank you so much for listening. If you like what you heard, then subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to leave us a review. It super duper helps other people find the show. As always, if you want to join the conversation, you can find us on all social media channels at this stage. Just search for 11FS or FinTech Insider. Or if you really want to, email us on podcast at 11FS.com. Thank you very much for listening, everybody. Goodbye. Goodbye.